Don't divide us in the Equiano project. I'm not going to say too much because we I just want to keep the introduction brief. We're both concerned with ensuring that political narratives in Britain around race remain grounded in reality and use reason to persuade people rather than fear to impose a narrow or distorted view. So we hope you'll look our work up on the um, emails that are uh, behind me. And if you like what you see, please consider supporting our work. Um, before I introduce our fabulous panel, I just want to um, remind everyone that um, as you're cogitating and listening to our wonderful speakers and thinking of your points and questions, that the focus tonight is very much on the revival or strengthening of anti-Semitism here in Britain or Europe or, or in America, the Anglo-American world, which has been brought into sharp relief, as we all know, since October 7th. Very few of us here have sufficient expertise or experience of life and politics in the Middle East. And more importantly, we're not citizens of any countries involved in that area. So whatever we may think about the problems there, it would be kind of um, uh, moot, really. But we are citizens of Britain and uh, or nearby countries. And the uh, what we're seeing, what we're witnessing in our public institutions and our public culture uh, is very much of a concern and things that we should be able to shape and direct. So the point of tonight is to get a better understanding of what contemporary anti-Semitism in the UK is about. So our speakers then, um, really delighted, a fabulous panel. First up is Daniel Ben-Ami on my far left here. Daniel's an author and a journalist. His books include Ferraris for All and Cowardly Capitalism. His most recent project is, which is an ongoing project, is launching um, a new website called Radicalism of Fools. And I really urge you to have a look at it because it contains an awful lot of really excellent, informative articles that really goes are very helpful in trying to rethink what anti-Semitism is today. Then after Daniel, we've got Stephen Pollard, who is editor at large of the Jewish Chronicle. He's um, a veteran journalist and commentator and author of numerous pamphlets and books, including co-writing um, the Orwell Prize nominated A Class Act, the myth of Britain's classless society. So his work in progress is called The Wandering Jew, and it's a history of Jewish migration, and it's due to be published in 2026. Yeah, thank you. So Khadija's written for many publications and she focuses on human rights, women, women's rights, minorities and extremism. And then fi the final speaker is Professor Frank Faradi. He's executive director of the think tank MCC Brussels and author of more books than I've had hot dinners, so I'm not going to attempt to um, list them all. Uh, his current focus, um, focus of his, I mean, his thinking is wide and deep, but I think be true to say current focus is a problem of moral and political authority and how they're playing out in Western societies and culture. Um, please, I mean, just personally, apart from being fantastic intellects and all the experience that they've got, I know from what I know of all of them personally is their own moral courage in having spoken out in a culture and at a time that doesn't really uh, always welcome people speaking out um, truth. So um, please, can we give them a warm welcome?
now over to you, Daniel. Right, well, what I thought I'd do, since I'm the first speaker, is to try and give my take on how uh, anti-Semitism links more broadly to the DDU's project and probably also to the Equiano project as well. Uh, I should say this is my personal take. Uh, I'm not an official spokesman for the for DDU. I mean, that's Alka, and I'm not even on the advisory board, which is Stephen and Khadija. So it's my kind of personal take as someone who does support uh, DDU uh, on how anti-Semitism relates to its broader project. And really what I'm going to argue is that what I'm going to call anti-black racism, you know, as a kind of shorthand, and anti-Semitism, they're both forms of racism, but they are different forms. They have different, they're both problems, both, you know, huge historical monstrosities. Uh, they have a lot in common in that they're both forms of racial thinking, but they are different forms. They're not identical. Now, how, how do I kind of understand DDU's uh, project? If you look on its website, you'll see the Our Beliefs section, and they're kind of spelt out, the, I think five or six core beliefs are spelt out there. I'm not going to go over them. But uh, the way I see it is very much related to Martin Luther King's famous 1963 I Have a Dream speech, where he famously said that, you know, what really mattered about people uh, is not the colour of their skin, but the content of their character. Uh, so that's you know, what's known as a colourblind approach to racism. In other words, he wasn't saying that there weren't huge differences between black and white in America in the 1960s. That would clearly be a crazy kind of argument. And no one brought up in, in America, in the American South, in the 1950s or 1960s, would make that argument. He wasn't saying that there were differences, but what he was arguing was that those differences can be transcended those differences can be overcome. Uh, and I think that is probably you know, the, the key, what I would consider to be anti-racism as properly understood. Uh, that yes, there are differences, you know, gender differences and sexual orientation differences and different skin colour and so on, but we can transcend those differences, we can, get, we can overcome them if we move in the right direction. Now that's very much very different from anti-racism as it's understood today. In fact, I would say directly opposite of anti-racism as it's understood today. Because the current understanding, of anti or mainstream understanding anyway, of anti-Semitism, uh, what's called identity politics, says, yes, there are divisions between black and white and other identity groups, but we can't really transcend them. You know, the most we can really do is kind of take from the people who are privileged, the kind of white privileged community, and divert resources to the people who are not privileged, to the people who are oppressed, because you have this kind of idea of a hierarchy of privilege. You can kind of redistribute resources to some extent, but we have these kind of insurmountable differences between people. And the, the most, the, the strongest kind of uh, expression of that that I remember seeing, probably most of you here have seen, there was a documentary in 2020 on Channel 4 called, I think, The Anti-Racist School or something along those lines, award-winning documentary. Uh, so it was a kind of mixed-race school, year seven kids, so around about 11 or 12. And they were just kind of yeah, playing around together, just you know, relating to each other just as kids, just like normal kids. And then you had these experts coming along and saying, no, 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 no. You white kids go into one room and we'll tell you about how you're privileged. And the kind of black kids, you go somewhere else 
and we'll tell you that uh, you're oppressed in this situation. So rather than trying to overcome the divisions, uh, making them even deeper. You know, that is what contemporary so-called anti-racism is really about. Uh, and I think, to me, that is really terrible because it's kind of stigmatising white kids, but also it's telling black kids that institutional racism is really, really strong and they really can't get ahead in modern societies because of the strength of institutional racism. They're really trapped at the bottom. Perhaps they can do a little bit better by getting some resources from the people in power, but they're really stuck. So that form of anti-racism, I would say, is directly contrary to what anti-racism meant in the 1960s and 1970s, and it's something that I'm very much opposed to, and I think DDU and the Equiano Project are very much opposed to, too. Now, how does that all relate to anti-Semitism? Uh, well, I would say at least the principles, as I've said, the, the specifics are different, but the principles also hold good in relation to anti-Semitism, because contemporary anti-racism, the least bad thing about it, and this is still pretty, pretty bad, is that I would say it's blind to anti-Semitism. It can't see anti-Semitism, even if it's right in front of your face. And I, I could spend the whole, how can one allow me to do this? I could spend the whole rest of the meeting just <laughs> listing examples. But one example might be Diane Abbott, the Labour MP for Hackney North, who wrote a letter earlier this year to The Observer, uh, where she said, Jews don't suffer from racism, but maybe they suffer from prejudice, she said, but not racism. And, but she wasn't just talking about Britain uh, today, she was talking historically. So she gave an example of uh, blacks suffered uh, under apartheid in South Africa, uh, blacks suffered under slavery, and of course those things are both true, but uh, didn't even occur to her to mention the Holocaust or to see the Holocaust. You know, arguably the greatest crime of the 20th century, six million Jews systematically murdered by the Nazis, but she's writing an article or writing a letter about racism uh, and not even seeing anti-Semitism, a complete blindness to anti-Semitism. And of course, from her starting point, and I don't accept her starting point, but if you do accept her starting point, that makes perfect sense. Because if you see racism as a crude kind of black and white issue, then you might not deny the Holocaust in the most literal sense. I mean, I'm sure that if you asked her, she'd say, yes, of course, the Holocaust happened. But she would say it's a kind of white-on-white -white violence. You know, it's white people being horrible to each other, not understanding there was a kind of racial dynamic to the whole thing. And the Nazis did, did see the Jews as a kind of race apart and uh, persecuted them and slaughtered them for that reason. But, you know, the, the, the current so-called anti-Semitism, I would say, is very much blind to that. And really, just to draw things to a, to a close, it's actually, actually even worse than that. Because I would say that the new uh, so-called anti-racism reinforces anti-Semitism. Because if you have this idea of a kind of hierarchy of privilege, and white people are at the top and people of colour at the bottom, it's very easy to draw the conclusion, and many people do, that uh, Jews, because it's a relatively successful community, they are hyper-privileged. That's how some people put it. Jews are hyper-privileged. They've benefited that they're... Uh, a successful uh, society or community in Britain and America, but they could only have done that at the expense of the oppressed at the bottom of society. Therefore, you have a, an example of what I call the radicalism of fools, uh, which is to say Jews are to blame for a lot of the problems in society. Jewish privilege, for, as, a, as an extreme form of white privilege in this kind of 
a distorted view, they are to blame for a lot of the problems in society. So just to sum up really, and going back to Martin Luther King, people often forget that in his speech he didn't actually just talk about black and white. He talked about what he called all of God's children. Now I wouldn't use a religious language, I'm not a religious person, but in his speech, and it's only a five or six minute speech, uh, he didn't just talk about black and white, he did talk about black and white, but he also talked about Protestant and Catholic, Jew and Gentile, and his aspiration was to overcome, transcend the differences between us. That's what I think we need to be doing, and I think in order to do that, we really need to challenge the poison that is identity politics. Thank you very much. Um, I would say it's a pleasure to be here, and in one sense, of course, it is, but it isn't in a much more real sense because it, nothing is pleasurable about the situation we find ourselves in with anti-Semitism rising exponentially. It's kind of tabloid word that people use exponentially, but it's true. It is rising exponentially. So it's in that context that I thought it would be useful to explore a question to which I don't have the answer, but with which I've been somewhat obsessed since Jeremy Corbyn became leader of the Labour Party in 2015. Within months of his election, there was a, an explosion of anti-Semitism on social media. Um, and as the months and years of his leadership wore on, that anti-Semitism became more open and more prevalent. And as, as editor of the Jewish Chronicle, I spent the four years of his leadership thinking about little else. But even I've been shocked shocked, surprised, I don't know what the word is, since October the 7th. Not, not so much by the scale of the anti-Semitism, but the blatancy and shamelessness of it, the, the, the normality of it, the banality of quite a lot of it. Remember the first Free Palestine so-called hate marches, and yes, that's really what they are, hate marches, took place on the 14th of October, before Israel had begun any kind of military response in, in Gaza. In other words, the response of those people marching through London to what happened on October the 7th was to march not in sympathy, but in opposition. So the question which I've been wrestling with, which I, as I say, I thought would be useful to consider is this. Has social media acted as a lubricant, a, a kind of rocket fuel, a radicalizing agent, uh, making things far worse? Or has it simply given a platform that was previously unavailable to a, which a pre-existing Jew hate has been able to show itself. In other words, does it simply let us see something which was always there but was hidden from view previously? In that context, there was a poll last week which I thought was remarkably interesting. For weeks we've seen school children being radicalised by the likes of Stop the War into missing school to attend anti-Israel demonstrations. These street protests explicitly for children have become ever more frequent and the poll helps explain why this is happening, how it is taking effect, and the implications of it for, for where we're going over the next few years. Overall, the picture is exactly as you might expect. The festivals of hate seen on the streets on most Saturdays turn out to be entirely unrepresentative of, of most people. Most Brits, the poll finds, both condemn what Hamas did and support Israel's right to defend itself, just as they're concerned about civilian loss of life in Gaza as well. Um, it's clear people also understand where things are heading. 29% think that the UK is unsafe for Jewish people. They believe that the protest organisers should do more to stop the hatred that's been on display. An admirable idea in theory, but when 35% of those who have attended marches 
say that uh, Hamas should be called freedom fighters, it's somewhat like asking, asking them to unscramble an egg. Um, the hate is integral to it. Above all, though, it's clear from the polling that social media is, as many have argued, fueling the frenzy and distorting the debate away from the views most people actually hold. Overall, about the same proportion sympathise with the Israeli side, 16%, as the Palestinian side, 18%. But that says little. More relevant is that the latter are far more intense, and as we see on social media and on the streets, are far more vocal. Palestinian sympathisers are, more, are more than twice as likely as those who side with Israel to say it's a cause they care about most, and three times as likely to have posted about it on social media. The results for 18 to 24 year olds are really deeply concerning, with 24% describing Hamas as freedom fighters, and they're passionate about it. A third of 18 to 24 year olds said they've had a heated conversation or argument with friends or family about the war. That's compared to less than 10% of, of most people. The report finds that young people feel pressured by their peers to take a side. In other words, those who believe Hamas are freedom fighters are vocal and unrelenting. Last year, I was told by an anti-extremism researcher who I know of her experience in one school. After giving training to a sixth form about 9-11, a teacher approached her about the session. Why, he asked, had she ignored the evidence that 9-11 was organised by the Jews? Now, I'm sure that this school, this is what she told me as well, that with, as with all British schools, teaches the Holocaust. And the teacher who pulled her to one side probably thinks that he was a very deep anti-racist and had no idea, in a way, that he was engaging in a perspective that underpins Nazi thinking and drives, and drives modern anti-Semitism. Many teachers know instantly what far-right Nazi-style anti-Semitism looks like. But when Jews are blamed for nefarious power, corruption and murdering Palestinians, identifying anti-Semitism and why it is a problem is lost. This is the crux of the issue. The success of David Baddiel's brilliant Jews Don't Count, which skewered progressive attitudes to racism, which are willfully blind, as Daniel was talking about, willfully blind to anti-Jewish racism, as if Jews who are seen as white cannot truly be the object of racism is one aspect of this. But it goes deeper, because some of those who think of themselves as being profoundly anti-racist, such as the aforementioned Jeremy Corbyn, nonetheless harbour stereotypical anti-Semitic thoughts about Jews, that they're rich, that they control the media, they stick together, and so on. They won't even recognise that these are racist ideas, seeing them merely as statements of fact. This explains how you can teach the Holocaust and yet not make any impact on dealing with living, breathing anti-Semitism. This is of a piece with what we've seen on campus for some years, and which is now intensifying since October the 7th. Two weeks ago, you may have seen a video of a Jewish speaker at Cardiff Student Union who was shouting down, shouted down for daring to speak against emotion on how to spot lies and propaganda from the state of Israel. He had to be escorted out for his own safety. Similar scenes are happening on campus almost everywhere. Three weeks ago, the, uh, three weeks after the October the 7th massacre, UCL's branch of the University and College Union voted for a motion supporting Intifada until victory. Across the country, Jewish students are reporting academics making similar comments in lectures and seminars, and hostile groups of fellow students chanting anti-Semitic slogans and making life intolerable for them. And we have, of course, been here long before, as the case of David Miller at Bristol University shows all too well. 
And it, as in the US, very few university authorities here are doing anything about it, which is no surprise given that they're pumping the same intellectual pool as those harassing Jewish students, and also separatist students, given how much money they receive from Qatar. I imagine most of you will have seen the testimony last week before Congress of the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn, three of the most renowned universities in the world. They were asked a simple question, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate your university's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? It's not a complicated question, is it? It's not a when did you stop committing adultery question. It's a question to which the answer is so obviously yes but not one of them could give that straightforward answer, yes. Each instead gave a variation on, it depends on the context, and whether the speech turns into actual conduct against specific individuals. Not one of them could accept the idea that calling for the genocide of Jews was a form of harassment of Jews, which pretty much sums up everything that's gone wrong in academia and on campus in recent decades. Instead of treating students as individuals enjoying equal rights, Students and academics are members of morally ranked identity groups. Group-based identity has become the primary analytical tool and moral lens in education. And since no white can be the object of racism, anti-Semitism isn't racism. It is rather a form of fight back against the oppression with which Jews suppress the Palestinians. Thus, anti-Zionism, which in reality is inseparable in most cases from anti-Semitism, is the only morally acceptable stance. Crucially, this isn't an intellectual model that sits alongside the old model as a kind of competing vision. It must destroy previously existing ideas of intellect and inquiry through such notions as deplatforming, safe spaces, and the obsession with diversity. So in conclusion, I'm going to suggest that there are two key intertwined aspects to this, which feed off each other and lead to this anti-Semitic explosion. There's the intellectual academic climate, which I've outlined, but there's also, and I've really not had time to go into this, but I'm sure others will, the Islamist push with extremist imams and hate speech, which we see both on the marches and more prosaically in mosques up and down the country. Sometimes it's open, but often it's sly, under the guise of supposedly respectable groups, such as the Muslim Council of Britain, in reality a Muslim Brotherhood front. It's no wonder that in the poll I cited earlier, three in five people are worried about the rise of Islamist extremism, 61%, and far-right extremism, 57%, with 61% expecting anti-Semitism to get worse as the war continues. Social media is awash with hate speech from imams, inciting hatred not just against Jews, but the West itself, and yet nothing is done offline. The authorities rarely act against these people, and there are ever more such sermons posted. Social media might be beyond salvage, but those responsible for much of its poison are not, and as a society so far, we've taken the decision to do nothing about it. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity um, to speak on this issue, especially um, during the circumstances we are facing as a society in the UK. Um, the rise in anti-Semitic incidents um, following the brutal terrorist attack, Hamas terrorist attack on uh, Israeli civilians uh, on October 7, 
uh, is apparent, but regrettably not surprising. Um, we know that anti-Semitism has always been there, but uh, we always notice it or maybe talk about it whenever the tensions flared up in um, Middle Eastern countries and then it, they, these tensions spill out um, over the shores of the UK. Uh, right after the tensions and the protest, uh, pro-Palestine protest, uh, you know, taking place across the Europe, we see the security measures uh, being put in place uh, to protect the Jewish community, the schools, and whatever activities, you know, happening uh, within that community. Uh, it is a good uh, step on the part of the authority, but my question is that why we have to do it in this day and age? I mean, I was um, entering the gates, I was stopped and checked. There was a security check. I go to so many places, but that never happened to me. Why it is happening here? That is absurd, and that is happening here in the UK. It's not happening in Saudi Arabia, in Pakistan, or in Afghanistan, or in any other Muslim-majority country. So these are the very legit questions that we need to address at this moment. Why we see the rise uh, in anti-Semitic in incidents? Because, uh, as I said, the, this hostile sentiment has, uh, have always been there. We see that Islamic schools and madrasas, there are anti-Semitic teachings uh, being promoted under the guise of religious beliefs. So I disagree with uh, Stephen when he said the Islamist push. I would say that these are Islamic teaching, Islamic teaching. So we need to uh, make it clear that there are certain readings of religion that promote anti-Semitism. And we need to address this issue. Then we see whenever we um, talk about growing anti-Semitism in the UK, there are always, you know, uh, voices throwing uh, term Islamophobia around. And my belief is that anti-Muslim bigotry, it does exist. But at this moment, when we see that Jewish people are afraid of leaving their homes, when these pro-Palestine protests are taking place, uh, across the Europe, not only in the UK, then we need to talk about specifically this one issue that is very much staggering at the moment. But then people, they, they just throw this term Islamophobia around. We know this term, why they use it. Not to protect people. This has nothing to protect people. We have seen that when Muslims, they face bigotry here in the UK, especially uh, from Ahmadiyya community, uh, the government and the community leaders, they do nothing to protect those people. This term is used to shut down criticism of all shades of Islam. And I believe that there are certain intolerant, intolerant religious beliefs that need to be criticized. Because we live in a society where we can let uh, intolerant belief take place or being promoted so overtly. But sadly, this happens here in front of our eyes. But then, as Daniel said, that it's a blind spot. Uh, it's always there, but people refuse to see this. Then we see the schools and uh, um, universities where uh, the children are supposed to be taught, uh, taught um, how to think. They are being taught what to think. The terms like Islamophobia are being pushed forward 
and then uh, the pro-Palestine, pro I would say, sentiments are very much in, in mainstream in those uh, uh, educational institutes. Uh, during the protests, we, we have noticed one thing, like I, I specifically, I, I have noticed that thing, that when um, the biggest march against anti-Semitism was taking place, we see journalists and media personalities, they were uh, telling us all about Tommy Robinson, you know, or his profile and his activities and everything he does and why he should not be attending the march. But when pro-Palestine protests, they take place, nobody tells us about anyone who is anti-Semite or who is promoting hatred. We see people holding a placard and uh, chanting hateful slogans. Uh, nobody bats an eye. Nobody uh, stops them. Nobody police their placards and asks them that why they are there. And we have seen the organizers of uh, that march against anti-Semitism. They made it sure that Tommy Robinson, he does not attend the march. He was not there to march with the, the, the people, with other people. But we see the organizers of pro-Palestinian marches, they do nothing in order to counter this one thing that is, uh, for, for good or bad reasons, is take, just uh, trying to hijack the whole protest. Pro-Palestinian, I'm not saying the cause is, is bad. There is There are legitimate, you know, things that needs to be addressed. But the thing is, we need to admit that these marches have been hijacked by those people who are anti-Semite. They are not talking about humans because before October 7, we know that um, a, a deal was taking place between the Arab countries and Israel, Abraham Accord, and four main Arab countries, they were willing to accept the existence of Israel. But then this tragic incident took place. And before the pro-Palestinian protests take place, there was a celebration of, of that slaughter that happened on 7th October. We saw that here in the UK, on the street of London, people were celebrating and shouting and were so happy and we saw people celebrating on social media. So we need to address these things when they are happening or taking place before the tensions flare up in the Middle East. Why we, we take notice of these things when there are tensions in, in Middle East? Now here in the UK, there are certain schools, Islamic schools and charities, they are teaching anti-Semitic, uh, you know, material in, in their premises, in their seminaries, and an open letter had been signed by uh, different activists and uh, people from different backgrounds. I myself have signed that letter to the Charity Commission to investigate the activities at, taking place in those uh, madrasas and uh, charities. So again, the question is, why the government and the concerned authorities, they have turned a blind eye. Yes, Muslim politicians, uh, Muslim scholars, religious scholars, they have failed to address this deep-rooted problem of anti-Semitism. But why the, the government and the concerned authorities, they are not taking any action. I mean, I would be saying if something is happening, uh, you know, to, to any uh, Muslim or any Hindu or any other person who is 
uh, who, who is a non-religious person. I would be saying the same thing if somebody is uh, facing discrimination here in the UK, that why the government is not taking up this, uh, you know, issue and tackling it uh, head on. But how are we going to tackle it when we have these uh, terms like Islamophobia, uh, it's hurled around and uh, you, you, you are not in a position to say anything. And when they talk about pro-Palestine, you know, sentiments, how are you going to tackle these things? Because you cannot justify the killing of any innocent people on either side. But yes, then they try to put what happened on 7th October in, into a context. They, that is most disturbing thing about this thing. But um, it's very tragic that when I'm talking about human rights, I have to mention um, Saudi Arabia. That, that's really tragic for me. But in Saudi Arabia, to tackle anti-Semitism, what has been happening, that they are revising or, you know, changing their curriculum. They are removing things that promote anti-Semitism. In Saudi Arabia, this is happening. And um, a London-based, yeah, just this last one. A London-based Institute for uh, Monitoring Peace and Cultural Tolerance in School Education. They have analyzed and observed the, the progress uh, taking place in Saudi Arabia. And according to them, the anti-Semitic material has been removed from the curriculum. So we need to address the root cause of this issue. We need to talk about the things that have been taught in those Islamic schools. Uh, under the guise of religious belief, because even if this is a religious belief, seriously, I don't care about it. It is intolerant, it is inhuman, and it should not be tolerated. Thank you. Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, I wish I wasn't here, and I wish I wasn't speaking on this subject, uh, but uh, circumstances have forced us to confront a very big problem. I always remember uh, my mom, who spent a, uh, almost a year in a concentration camp, a place called Bergen-Belsen in the 1940s, telling me that, uh, you know, Frank, you're so idealistic. Uh, you don't realize that anti-Semitism will never go away. And I used to argue with her all the time. And I said, look, things are going to change. You know, we live in a more enlightened world. Don't be so pessimistic one day our day will come. And she, and she kind of looked at me with those sad eyes of her and kind of said, you know, you'll learn, Frank. And I think uh, I'm gradually coming around to her view uh, far too late in life that maybe she had a point. And I struggle to understand why that is. But at the moment, what I'm really interested in is not so much uh, anti-Semitism in general or its generic character. The thing that I'm really uh, concerned about is why is it that the young people are disproportionately more drawn towards anti-Semitic ideals? Why is it that young people tend to have a greater sympathy with Hamas than their elders? Why is it that so many young people fail to see what's in front of their eyes when an atrocity occurs, uh, but somehow switch off and they see something very, very different? In other words, why is it that anti-Semitism has become really cool? And it's becoming cooler and cooler all the time in, in dimensions of youth culture. And why is it that uh, anti-Semitism, uh, and uh, particularly in its anti-Zionist form, seems to draw the idealism of young people in a far more effective way than the other side, our side? 
And I think what you were saying about the two demonstrations where young people on the uh, pro-Hamas demonstration, the pro-peace demonstration, much more enthusiastic. They really believed in what they were doing. And you compare that to the what I felt was a rather passive way that the our demonstration was against uh, anti-Semitism. Um, I really fear for the future. So uh, I, as, a, as an intellectual, as a sociologist, as an author, I'm really concerned with this question of how we confront this particular problem. I don't know if you saw the poll that was carried out uh, by the economist in YouGov in America very recently, which demonstrated that one out of five 19 to 29-year-olds in America think that the Holocaust never happened, that it simply didn't happen. That was bad enough. But another 30% took a neutral view. They weren't sure whether it did or whether it didn't happen. And only 47% of those interviewed felt that this was something that was real, that, that really was a Holocaust, that 6 million Jews really died. Only 47% took that view. Now, you might say, well, that's just the young, you know, even though it's a very wide uh, age range, all the way up to 29. And you might also say, well, their elders, the older people, uh, do not take that kind of standpoint. So, on balance, uh, only 7%, only 7% of Americans seem to think that the Holocaust never happened. But by and large, there's a very huge problem there. Many people explain it by saying, well, you know, the young kids are really far away from the Holocaust. They're not as close to it as some of the old people. Others blame the social media. The social media gets blamed for everything. And it's like an all-purpose, you know, sort of explainer and any problem that moves. But what they really are, aren't really kind of grasping is that there's something going on. There's something important going on within our culture that incites people. And what's interesting about this as well, and this has never happened in the same kind of a way so extensively, it's whereas in the past you could say, well, it was poor people, working class people, peasants, who tended to be anti-Semitic and intellectuals who were, the, who were the ones that were most resistant to it. Today it's almost the other way around. You, know, you go to you talk to my colleagues in the university, and it's almost, you know, when I talk about anti-Semitism, you can see that, that kind of inflection in their faces. You can really see that they think that I kind of wish that Frank would just shut up and, and not talk about this particular kind of problem. And you can really see that there's something. One of my colleagues, uh, who's, uh, who's quite sensitive, uh, another sociologist, basically says that these people just have a, a Jew problem, that they don't even understand what it is, but they really regard Jewishness, particularly Jewish people who stand up for, for their rights and for who they, who they are, as somehow a lower form of uh, moral being than the rest of academia. So that's a very interesting development. And my explanation on this, and there's a lot of different dimensions to this, my explanation is this. Have you noticed that the kind of people that think that uh, there is more than one gender, that men and women are not particularly a, an, an important distinction, the kind of people that think that Black Lives Matter is the most significant social justice movement to ever hit the universe, the kind of people that uh, think that Me Too movement uh, has made the most uh, dramatic contribution to human civilization, the kind of people that think the LGBTQ culture is really uh, where it's at, all these people almost spontaneously chose Hamas over the victims of the atrocities on October 7th. So just pause for a second. How did that happen? 
that all these very sensitive people, the kind of people that talk about uh, violence, uh, that uh, words are violence and, and to keep quiet is also violence, when they see real violence being committed in, 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 in the Negev desert, suddenly do not recognize that. And it seems to me that the answer to this question, uh, it's a question that a lot of Jewish people in America in particular are struggling with because they're part of these movements. You know, they discover a little bit too late what's really going on. When they wake up one morning and they realize that the Me Too movement doesn't actually recognize uh, the importance of violence being committed against Jewish women you know, at a, at a, a rave in, in Israel, they realize that something weird has occurred. And I think what has happened here is that identity politics, the cultural identity politics, has almost imperceptibly mutated, first of all, into anti-Zionism. And we know that already, that anti-Zionism has acquired this grotesque proportion. These are people that can barely even spell the word Zionism, are nevertheless against it. So anti-Zionism has become integral to the cultural politics of identity, and almost, almost silently, imperceptibly, that kind of uh, hatred for Israel has casually become a, a standpoint that is really switched off from seeing anti-Semitism. It begins by being switched off from seeing anti-Semitism as a problem, and then gradually becomes hardened, becomes more rigid, and assumes that uh, Jewish people haven't got the same kind of rights. In particular, uh, in identity politics, which is based on, on the politics of victimization, where being a victim is really quite important and, and, and it's got moral authority. But you have a hierarchy of victims. The one group that could never be a victim from that point of view are Jews. I mean, Jewish people are seen as, as Daniel was saying, as white and hyper-white. Jewish people are seen as the very opposite of victims because supposedly they not only have white privilege, but they have white privilege squared, which is something that you know, they kind of uh, sort of talk about all of the time. And therefore, what has happened uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a horrific kind of a way is that not only uh, are Jews uh, immunized from being a victim, that somehow they kind of separate from that, but even uh, when they were historical victims of, of the Holocaust, when the Holocaust was seen as being uh, the apotheosis of victimization of the Jews, even that has been turned against Jews. So not only have Jewish people been dispossessed, of their relation to the Holocaust, but the Holocaust has been turned into a weapon that you wield against Jewish people. So now we talk about how Jews and Israelis are committing Holocaust in Gaza and in other kind of places. And you've seen all those placards that talk about, you know, and equate what, you, what Israel is doing with the Holocaust. You understand that there's almost like a, like a visceral reaction that is taking place amongst these individuals where in a sense, victim politics uh, works in that kind of way. Victim politics is very interesting. Uh, one of the main tenets of victim politics is believe the victim. I don't know if you ever heard that. Or believe the child or believe the woman. It's, it's a, a number of different variations. The one, the one people you don't believe are Israelis and Jews, right? I mean, it's interesting that whatever they say, you know, the default position is we don't believe what they are saying. And I think this kind of politics has become uh, really, really quite important. I could go on and talk about the other dimension, which we talked about the whole question of Islamism. Uh, and I th living now in Brussels, I can see that Islamism 
and, and, and the politics of Islamism is extremely pernicious and is very powerful. But there's one important point here, which, which relates to the, the discussion that we're having. You see, you talked about the differential reaction in the demonstrations. Now, why is that? I mean, why is the police, you know, sort of waving rainbow flags when, when pro-Hamas marchers are, are going around? You know, why are they smiling at the pro-Hamas marchers? Uh, and at the same, and, and when there's a, a march against anti-Semitism, all they can do is talk about Tommy Robinson as if, like, he's the headline news. And I've drawn the conclusion, just talking to a few friends of mine who are criminologists and who know, who know quite a lot about these things, and what they are actually are saying is that the reason why the police behave in the way they do is they're actually scared, right? They're actually scared of confronting those demonstrations. And it's not just the police who are scared of confronting Islamism. How many teachers in this country, when they have a Holocaust lesson in their PCHA, whatever it's called, you know, sort of a, a stream, when somebody objects, when they see, like, as happened in Bradford, a Muslim kids saying, we don't believe in the Holocaust, you know, we don't want to listen to this, the teachers switch off. And they smile and, that, and they talk about, I don't know, the Magna Carta or something else. That happens a lot, all the time. How many times we have a situation where somebody makes a slip and makes an anti-Semitic remark and the people that are there just, you know, just avoid, they look at their shoelaces as if it really hasn't happened. And that kind of uh, Islamist, uh, more explicit form of anti-Semitism, which is not as genteel as the Western European one, has been allowed to flourish and has now come together uh, in an ironic, paradoxical way with identity politics. And that's the problem uh, that we are kind of confronting with at this particular stage in time. Now, the question is, can we stop this? Right? Can we actually do something about this? And I think it's really very difficult unless we take ourselves a little bit more seriously. I think we have, to, particularly those, of us, those people who are not Jewish, have really got to step up because you know, there's lots of people, millions of people, who know that anti-Semitism is corrosive and will destroy our way of life. They've got to step up and, and confront this problem honestly, explicitly, and with a bit of courage. We need to be able to have a, in a sense, almost go on the offensive. I mean, I'm sick and tired of reading newspaper articles where, where, where they write about how Jewish people need protection and Jewish people are, these, you know, are on the defensive and we need to help them out. Uh, instead of actually taking a much more uh, proactive stance uh, in relation to that. So I think we need to step up. That's really uh, quite important. And I think the most important thing is make sure that anti-Semitism stops being cool, right? stops being seen as cool. That means that we've got to confront the issue with the young people. We have to really have the arguments out with them. We've got to work out a strategy that's much more uh, aggressive and much more nuanced and intelligent than the existing Holocaust educational programs, which tend to be preachy, which tend to kind of uh, imagine that just by showing pictures of Auschwitz, that will do the job. We've got to relate to the cultural dynamics, the cultural forces that, that draw young people in the wrong kind of direction. And to me, that's the really key task that we've confronted with. How do we get young people uh, to shift their idealism uh, away from Hamas, away from anti-Semitism, towards a more constructive, a more universalistic, uh, a, more, a more positive vision of the future. So it seems to me these are quite important. And finally, I think we need to be, just we need to be, stop being cowards. 
when we're confronted with Islamism. I, you know, every, you know, every time somebody calls you uh, an Islamophobe, uh, you can tell them where to go, basically. And we should be much more, much more clear about how we de deal with that question and actually turn it around and demonstrate that, in, in many respects, Islamophobia is a fiction that was <laughs> invented to guilt trip British people from seeing what's in front of their eyes. Thank you.